0: Shabbat Shalom. Welcome, welcome. I do want to make an exciting announcement before we get into Hebrews Ivrim chapter 13 today. We've been picked up by Wilkins Radio and will be airing in the Bakersfield, California area, I believe, beginning this week. Um, Monday at 5.30 in the evening, drive time. So um, that's Wilkins, W-I-L-K-I-N-S, Wilkins Radio in California, particularly the Bakersfield area. So pray for the Bakersfield area geographically and generationally, that we can reach the hearts of Yahuwah's people. Maybe there's a huge flock there that just are needing to be pulled out of the doctrines of our fathers. So we do pray for that ministry, and um, very exciting. So please, turn with me, Ivrim, Hebrews, and there's only 13 chapters. But... The continuation of Hebrews will be next week, because I'm going to find 14 chapters out of 13, and we'll do an overview of what we've been doing for the past 13 or 14 weeks. So next week, we will actually wrap up Hebrews with an overview and a summary, but let's begin in verse 1. "'Let Israelite brotherly ahava love continue.'" Be not forgetful to entertain gerim, strangers, that in that manner some have entertained heavenly malachim, angels unaware. Remember them that are in prison, as in prison with them, and them who suffer adversity. For you are also human. Now, I want to bring to our attention some parallel language that circulated in a first-century manuscript known as the Didache. The Didache. Um, Its official name is Didache Ton Doteca Apostolion, or Didache in short. And it means the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. And it was a text that was written sometime before the destruction of the Second Temple. So sometime before 70 in the Common Era. And it was a book that was considered scripture until the Catholicos came along in 325 of the Common Era and chucked it out. But um, in Deideche... Chapter 4 verse 1 it is written and notice the parallel language of the first couple of verses about how we're to behave. My child, you will remember the one who speaks the word of Elohim to you by night and day and you will honour that one as the master. For whenever the masterful speak, there is the master. Moreover, you will seek out the kedoshim, the saints, every single day so that you may find shalom in their words. You will not cause a rift, but you will calm down the contentious. So the Didache was a group of texts that was really about how the first century believers and followers of the Malkit were to behave together. It's a great read. You can find it online, Didache, and it talks about hospitality, how you're to behave, and it really gives you good insight into the first century believers and how they acted in community but here you can see they longed for one another they longed to be together so that they could be in the company of the Kedoshim and quite honestly after spending three days with you all last week and then going back into the world this I was so desperate to come and be amongst you all today and I really do see that I mean, we are so blessed, and I'm so blessed that we can have this time together. It truly is remarkable. Now, notice, you may have picked this up already, but there is a shift in the language in chapter 13. It differs from the prior, previous 12 chapters that makes one believe that the author has shifted location. I believe at this point, I'm quite convinced, not 100%, but I am quite convinced that the author is Apollos of Alexandria. I mean, he's so learned in the Greek, he's brought up in the Alexandrian texts. I'm convinced almost 100%, not quite. But I believe that the author, if it is Apollos of Alexandria, he isn't able to deliver this message. In chapter 13, of course, there were no chapters, but this particular document in person at this point. It appears he had to write it down and then send it since he was some distance outside of Judea at this point. Some distance outside of Judea. You can see the shift in the language from the previous 12 chapters. Now, we're going to get into these two key exhortations that involve right now, number one, the call to remember remain and number two the call to remember the two exhortations to remember and to remain because the conclusion is for us to busy our lives that's what we're supposed to do busy our lives with what praises and what is pleasing unto Yahusha that's what we're to do today It talks about hospitality, and in the Greek, of course, this means hospitality is brotherly love. And it's the Greek word Philadelphia. Philadelphia is unique to the Nazarene literature. It's spiritualized, it's spiritualized, it's religious in its term and it's distinctive of the early Nazarene discourse of reaffirming a close love in practice when you come into the fellowship together. Sharing all things and even suffering abuse for one another. Practice Philadelphia with one another while at the same time, the author's going to go on, you do practice Philadelphia brotherly love with one another but at the same time not practicing inappropriate kinds of love that violate the marital bed and bond as we can see so there's four obligations that we can see at the opening of our text in Hebrews 13 four obligations number one Philadelphia love the brethren. It's a love. It truly is a love of the brethren. Number two, hospitality. Forget not to show love unto strangers, because you could be entertaining angels. You could be entertaining angels. The third obligation is sympathy. Remember them that are in chains, in bonds, in prison. How? In prayer, in visitation. And number four, sanctity of marriage. Let marriage be had in honour among all. The Greek word here for bed is very interesting. It's the Greek word for bed is koite, koite, where, of course, we get our English word, koitus, intercourse, intercourse. Intercourse. So the emphasis isn't on the bed itself, but what's going on in the bed. It's to be kadosh. It's to be holy. It is to be according to what has been written before. Marriage, verse 4, is honourable in all situations, and the bed is to remain undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, Yahuwah, will judge. Remember in chapter 12, we came upon all of that Exodus 19 terrifying mount language, Remember that in chapter 12? Well, verse 4's theorem is Exodus 19, verse 14. So verse 4's theorem is Exodus 19, verse 14, where it's written, And Moshe went down from the mount to the people, and he set apart the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Approach not your wives in intimacy. So this is where we see the dovetailing now of what the writer is communicating to the book of he- um, in the book of Hebrews to his audience. The dovetailing of the book of the covenant, because in the book of the covenant, you found the foundation of what? Mikvah. Holiness, natural separation and distinction in a time of coming apart when you need to from your wives. It comes from the covenant. It's the covenant code of holiness. But there is some dovetailing with the book of the law, the schoolmaster or tutor that was added later. Because the book of the law lays out more teaching and instruction on the marriage and set apartment set-apartness, especially the time requirements for health, healing, and holiness. And you find that in Leviticus chapter 12 and 15. So because the foundation is in the book of the covenant, we see that in Exodus nineteen fourteen. you will find more information on how to abstain and keep your marriage bed undefiled. Because women need time for holiness, health, and recuperation. We must keep those commandments because where is the foundation of abstaining from your wives? from the covenant code. But there's more information under the schoolmaster and the tutor. But the key in Leviticus 12 and 15 is that the holiness code is to be followed less the Levitical sacrifices. Take the instruction, because the theorem is found in the book of the covenant, Exodus 19, and apply the instruction while simultaneously relinquishing any and all Levitical sacrificial rites. Does that make sense? Does that make sense, Brother Steve, in the back? Okay, because, you know, I'm always looking, because Brother Steve, we've discovered, is the zealot, zelotos, the zealotos, the zealotos, when it comes to the zedek Covenant Code. We were out till midnight with our children, last week. It was amazing. And Brother Steve was in the kitchen amongst the food doing the Zelotos on the Malkit Zedek. And Brother John and I were just sitting on the couch having a good old chuckle. It was great. We love you, Steve. We love you, Zeal, brother. (laughs) i got to tease him. So we can see now marriage is to be a sanctity and the bed is undefiled why because believers continue to employ mikvah and the set apart durations of time in their marital life cycles this is a call to fidelity faithfulness in marriage it's not a call to asceticism it's certainly not a call to frigidity marriage is to be exciting marriage is to be adventurous but it is to be kadosh. So he's talking about Hebrew femininity, masculinity, and sexuality coming together in purity. So if you do engage in sexual relations as an unmarried person, you're biblically obligated to follow through on your behavior and get married to that person. Otherwise, you're whores, And whoremongers. If you are married, you don't stray outside the marriage in mind or indeed, otherwise, you're an adulterer. So there's these different terms adulterer, if you stray outside of the marriage, and whoremonger, if you're active as an unmarried. You don't want to be either of those. So the institutionalized church neglected to teach the sobering truth that Yahweh is a witness. Listen, Yahuwah is a witness between thee and the wife of thy youth. Against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet she is still thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Even though the state may legitimize your adultery, do not forsake the wife of your youth, Malachi 2 verse 14. Tie that in with Mark chapter 10 and it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living aloha. We have to be careful. What the Scripture condemns as adultery, the state will legitimize that you can be a whoremonger and an adulterer. Do not go to the state to legitimize your adultery. Go to the Scripture and stay pure. Look at verse 5. "'Let your behavior be without greed, and be content with such things as you have.' For the master Yahuwah himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So some may take unfair advantage of the priesthood's call to hospitality. Which is why in the Daideche 11 and Daideche chapter 12 provides guidelines for behavior in hospitality. Because what was happening in the first century is that believers were being taken advantage of. So the didache, leave, um, excuse me, the didache lays out requirements on how long you can stay in somebody's house and what kind of provisions you can expect it to be given so that people don't take advantage. By, because by the end of the first century, people were already starting to take advantage of believers' hospitality. You know? What do they say? What do they say? Families like fish. After three days, you've got to throw them out. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? <laughs> but... But as we can see, there's an enmity between entertaining strangers and accepting strange teaching. There's an enmity between entertaining strangers and accepting strange teaching. Verse 6, of course, comes from Psalm 118, verse 6, specifically in the Septuagint. So that we may boldly say, Yahuwah, he is my helper. And I will not fear what man shall do to me. Remember those who lead you and who have spoken to you the word of Yahuwah, whose outcome follow, imitate their mitzvot and emunah faith. So, leaders are to speak the word of Yahuwah to converts and potential converts. And also also you can see, if you notice right here in verse 6, the generic term, those who lead you. What does this speak about? Verse 7, excuse me. Those who lead you. This is a very generic term. So what does this key us into? This points to the earliness of this document. It's got to be sometime in the late 60s because we see no mention of a structure of apostles, elders. It's just this generic term, those who lead you. So this tells us of the earliness of the document. There's nothing relating to the apostles or any second century episcopal structure whatsoever within the text. Look at verse 8. I'm going to spend some time on verse 8 because people like to massacre verse (laughs) 8. Verse 8. Yahushua HaMashiach. The same yesterday, today, and Le'olam Vayed. Forever. Okay. I'm going to give you three interpretations. Three interpretations on this verse, okay? Number one. The term yesterday was applied to Yahushua's atoning work in Hebrews 9 and Hebrews chapter 10. And today is applied to Yahushua's present intercessory work from the Shamayim, from the heavens. So the first interpretation is the term yesterday. Is applied to Yahusha's atoning work in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10. And today is regarding Yehusha's present intercessory work in the heavens, Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 7. We know he is faithful forever, Hebrews 1 and 7, meaning the first interpretation that Yehusha is always to be counted on us as. Dependable, trustworthy, and the captain of our salvation. The second interpretation: if Yahusha is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then how is it possible that He changed the Shabbat to Sunday, changed Passover? to the bare-breasted fertility goddess, Easter, and he made pigs fly. Pigs fly down your esophagus. How is that possible? You can't have it both ways. Either he did all those things that the institutionalized church holds dear, like Easter ham, and he isn't the same yesterday, today, and forever, or... He is, in fact, the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means Shabbat, the Feast of Yahuwah, the Dietary Commandments, and the Torah Covenant Code of Biblical Holiness remains with you today. Second interpretation. Now, the third interpretation... I like the third interpretation. I like the second too. I like them all, but I really must put emphasis on the third. This verse, the context means Yahushua gives us victory in our trials. So the third interpretation is that Yahushua gives us victory in our trials. He brought forth victory to the past saints in chapter 11, and for the more recent saints in verse 7, he's given us victories in the past. He gives us victories today, and he will give us victories in the future because there are actually three ways. Listen, there are actually three ways that Yahushua is not the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is three ways that Yahushua is not the same yesterday, today, and forever. But we don't have time to get into that today. No, of course we do. <laughs> You're like, what? <laughs> We're gonna leave that for the next Passover, see? Sorry. Okay. How wasn't Yahusha the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow? How isn't he the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow? Three ways he's not. Number one, he wasn't always the same in his person. He wasn't always the same in his person. A text out of context creates a pretext, and error begets error. Until the incarnation, for all eternity past, he existed only in the form of, of Eloah, did he not? Philippians chapter 2. At the incarnation, he put on flesh and therefore he changed his person. So in his person, he is not the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because after his resurrection, his person changed again, did it not? Mortality put on Immortality. In his person, Yahusha is not and has not been the same yesterday, today, and forever. Has he? Help me out here. Has he? Because these... Calm down. My family's present. Imbeciles love to rip a text out of context and build some kind of hierarchical theology, when really, if you break it down, this is not what it's saying, is it? Because obviously, in his person, when we look at it, instead of just scraping right through to the next verse, we can see, no, in his person, he definitely is not the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Before the incarnation, after the incarnation, and after the resurrection, his person changed. Right? So it's very important, as we're in the Word of Yahuwah, that we don't just take this crazy mash job of theology and just buzz right through the Scriptures with a buzzsaw to try and make our doctrine stick, when upon close examination, you can see, well... Something more is at hand. The second way that Yahusha is not the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow is the way that Yahusha deals with men. His activities are not the same with men yesterday, today, and forever. He didn't deal with every saint the same way. He chose to save some saints from death, Fire, lions, but others he chose to leave to be tortured to death. Yet all were exor- exercising faith, were they not? They were all exercising faith in his activities. Yahusha has not been the same yesterday, today, and forever with his activities with men, has he? No. And the third way that Yahusha has not been the same. Yehusha has not been the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow in his order. This, of course, is my favorite. In times past, blood sacrifices and Aaronic priests were necessary. But now they're no longer necessary. It isn't an abrogation of Torah. It's a change in his order, a change that's laid out in Hebrews 7 verse 12. Yahushua is not unchangeable in his person. Yahushua is not unchangeable in his activities. And Yahushua is not unchangeable in his order. And that is where people love to ramrod through their theology without stopping and looking at this carefully. What is unchangeable is his divine nature. What is unchangeable is he will provide victory and spiritual maturity in the midst of persecution to all of you who exercise faith and finish the race of faith. Now that is where he's unchangeable. We have to stop painting the scriptures with these big, churchy, broad brushstrokes, failing to navigate within and what remains and what changes within the scripture. You see, the institutionalized church is founded on the division of no-law and neo-paganism. Whereas Judaism is founded upon the division of Sadduceeism and rabbinicalism, Torah and Talmud. And Messianics is founded upon pro-law encumbered by its Levitical and rabbinical pitfalls. Whereas the Malkit Zedek alone recognises a book of the covenant and a book of the law division, thereby allowing those of the priesthood the rightly dividing point of the Torah. Accepting the change where the change is decreed by Scripture, Scripture alone. A change our author has spent Thirteen chapters proclaiming a change in the priesthood, a change in the sanctuary, and a change in the sacrifice, thereby dismantling the three pillars of Judaism while simultaneously erecting the three pillars of Yahushua. We are eating meat But it's those that like to get on the teat that buzz through these verses. Oh, you can't change. Well, he changes in his person, does he not? And they have to admit that he does. He changes in his activities towards men, does he not? Well, yes. And he changes within his order, does he not? So where's your no change then? You've just admitted that he changes in his person. He changes in his activities with men, and he changes within his order. You see, because when you start to question, then people either walk away because they don't want to spend the time researching and looking. It is very clear. And it gets rid of this nonsense, these knee-jerk reactions. So, please, please stop going to your messianic sheep verse. Here's the messianic sheep verse Hebrews 8, verse 4. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the book of the law or the law. You see? Yahushua can't be a priest on earth, and you can't be priests on earth. There's your messianic sheep verse. Everyone goes to it. So therefore, they're limiting the work of Yahushua and elevating the work of men. Now, let's really dig into this messianic sheep verse, because this, is, this verse is a favourite of Levitical pushers to rip out of context. And to do that, they have to isolate this verse, Hebrews 8 verse 4, from the seven preceding chapters, and they have to divorce it from the book of the law where the instructions of the Levitical priests are outlined. This verse, listen, this verse does not bar Yahushua from being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek on earth. It doesn't. It states, if you look, that according to the law, the book of the law in context, the priests that offer gifts are Levites. That's what it states. But the author has already stated that Yahushua is the high priest of a different order because there has been a change of the law that has brought in the change of the priesthood. Hebrews chapter 7. And the newest administration of it is not according to the book of the law, but according to the new book of the covenant or new covenant. The context, the, the, the context that we can see here, and this is what infuriates me, the context that the Levitical pimps, and they are Levitical pimps, because they're pushing you their DVDs, they're pushing you their books, they're pushing you your, their annual membership login fees that, that rip from your checking account each and every year. I was skiing with a friend of mine just last year. No, it was two years ago. We're up on the ski lift and he gets an alert, I get to the alert and I'm like, I just got jacked out of my account again. He's like, I just got jacked too. I've been trying to cancel this login membership thing for years. He's like, me too. Then this year we're up skiing again. I get this bloody alert on my iPhone. I just got jacked in my bank account again. And he gets it. He's like, I just got jacked too. I've, I've, been try, I've called PayPal, I've called my bank, I've tried to contact them. I mean, they are ripping people off. If that happened to two of us on a ski lift two years in a row, can you imagine how, and you try and get on the website and you find, how do you cancel this thing? It's like trying to cancel the North Korean blooming flyover that comes up and every day. It's impossible. So they are pimps. My wife's like, you can't say that. I say, yes, they are pushing. They are pushing. They are making money, pushing the Levitical hierarchy in DVDs, books, and annual membership logins that you cannot cancel or extremely hard to navigate to try and cancel. My goodness gracious me. But the context that these pimps seem to start sidestep Is the juxtaposing of the book of the law and its restricted priesthood with the new covenant and its unrestricted priesthood? That's what the author is talking about. This Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 is important, meaning the Levitical priesthood limited who could be a priest and where they could be a priest, as opposed to the Malchizedek priesthood, which is unlimited in scope, and it's unlimited in sphere. That's what it's talking about. And I'm sorry to spend the time and be sarcastic, but I'm like Marmite. You either love me or you hate me. And, you know, nobody else is going to come out and say it. So I figured I would. Yahushua's priesthood takes over where the Levitical priesthood left off. This is the change of law, Hebrews 7.12, a rearrangement that the Torah has experienced as a result of the payment of the death penalty position of Genesis 15 and the resulting restoration back to covenant fidelity that was breached at the golden calf where the people received the book of the law. Hebrews 7 verse 11. So we find that Yahushua made flesh is in fact changeable. He's changeable in his person. He's changeable in his activities towards men. And he is. I know the Levitical pimps and I have to say it just one more time. Love to sidestep this. But he is changeable in his order. So let's go home. You know, I just got to get it out. (laughs) Nobody else is going to say it. Why do these Levitical pimps, I said it again, whenever they're doing these streams or video conferences or whatever they're doing, why? Ask yourself, why do they always sit in front of bookshelves? Have you noticed that? Why do they always sit in front of bookshelves? You're not that smart. But you try to portray you're so smart because you try to intimidate people not to ask questions. But we're asking questions. He wasn't on that. Do you want me to do it again? Again? But we're asking questions. Did it work? Oh, for crying out loud. Well, it would have been fun. But anyway, that what is that? What is that? Why do they always have to film themselves in front of a bookcase? You know they haven't read those books. They're fillers. Because if they had read that much, they wouldn't be so stupid. My son's like, you can't say the word stew. Well, I did. It is total nonsense. And it is used to intimidate and to elevate. You're the lay people. Don't question me. Look at all the books I've read. You know what? There's one book that we need to read. And we all have access since the Reformation to it. It leveled the playing field. No one smarter than one another. Together, by the Ruach HaKodesh, Jeremiah 31, 31, we get rid of the hierarchy and hegemony, and we can delve into the Scriptures together. Not to be intimidated by your bookshelves and your nonsense. We just have tie-dye, because we all like to remind us that we're lowly, hippie children. <laughs> We're sojourners, vagabonds. That's why we do the tie-dye. And it's cheap. (laughs) Crying out loud. Verse 9, let's get back to business. Okay, I just had to get that out, all right? And I do get to be cheeky about it because that is part of of the character flaws that I have that I do not try to hide. Okay? Verse 9. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a tov, it is a good thing that the lev, the heart, be established with favour, not with foods, which has not profited those that have been occupied with that. We have an altar from which they have no right to eat, who serve the earthly tent of meeting. Now, there's two Greek adjectives which our author uses here to describe diverse and strange doctrines, verse 9. The first adjective is poikilos, not percolate, those of you that are thinking it's your afternoon coffee time. I said Poikilos. Poikulos means unstable, unstable. And the second adjective that's used is xenos. Xenos, it means foreign. It comes from an external source, a foreign external source. So this is a good indication that there were teachings that were so foreign to the Zedic Nazarene faith community that they were viewed as demented and deranged. That's what it tells us. A classification, in fact, that Titus is using for temptations and lusts of our flesh. And our author attributes it to the temptation to return to the blood, animal, sacrifices, and the Aaronic priesthood, chapters 7 through 10, are unstable and foreign to the Nazarene Melchizedek faith. You see, the context of the temple sacrificial system establishes this interpretation. In light of the Melchizedek confession of faith, returning to the Sadducean temple system with its added man-made laws is, in fact, the strange doctrine that should be avoided. Verse 9, this isn't, abrogating the dietary laws, which are still very much part of the Torah book of the covenant of holiness. Look at Leviticus 18 verse 1. The Levitical priests, the whole tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat Yahuwah's offerings. Let's slow this one down. What did it just say? The Levitical priests, they shall have no inheritance. Because what's their inheritance tied to? What's their inheritance tied to? Because this Malkit Zedek teaching that we have spending so much time about is connected to what, Brother Steve? Inheritance. Where's your inheritance? And who's your inheritance? Is it some man who thinks he has the right genealogy in his blood? Or is it the resurrected master that transcends genealogy by the overflowing scourge of his blood? Where's your inheritance? Because it tells us, you see, I can't stand. Double dipping. I can't stand it. Leviticus 18, verse 1. The Levitical priests, the whole tribe of Levi, shall have. No, that's none. That's nada, portion, or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat Yahuwah's offerings. They shall eat Yahuwah's offerings. This is speaking of the Aaronic priests not being able to partake of the inheritance of Yahusha's priesthood outside the gates. You don't get to double dip on the inheritance. That's still from Yahuwah. If you want to partake of the Levitical hierarchy, then you go up to the animal sacrificial system and the temple system and you partake of those animal sacrifices and you eat of that and that's your inheritance. Or... You come to the Melchizedek Passover, you eat my flesh and drink my blood. You go to an altar outside the gates and that's your inheritance. You don't get to double dip. Double dip messianic theology mumbo jumbo. You see, because what happens, the more I study, the more I'm in prayer, the more righteous indignation comes as I am more convinced and convicted of the superiority of Yahushua above all things. That is, when you see me all riled up and passionate, this is the conviction from the word of, I am confident in his word. And I am not confident, and I am not intimidated by bookshelves. I'm not. And that is what makes me and you dangerous. And this is where we're supposed to have some danger music coming in, by the way, in the. Right? Crying out loud, Corey's sleeping on the job. John? Somebody's laughing in the back. Oh my goodness. Basically, what we see right here in verse 9 is that occupying oneself with the sacrificial meats won't profit anyone if they turn their back on the true Passover lamb and trade in the wrong inheritance. That's the point. That's the point. Look at verse 9. The heart is established with favour. This references the establishment of Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant and the Torah is written where? On the heart. Verse 11. For the bodies of those beasts whose darm blood is brought into the Kadosh place by the Kohen Haggadah for sin are burned outside the camp. Yahushua was crucified outside the sacred zone. If we want to benefit from Yahushua's sacrifice, if we want to benefit from Yahushua's death, we have got to come outside of the sacred zones of religion, outside the comfortable camp, don't we? And that's why we're all here. We came outside of those sacred zones where everyone thought it was safe. No. You have to come outside the sacred zones, outside of the hierarchy, and outside of the status quo. Where we find that they committed enough because they found the faith, we have to ask the question, are we committed because were they committed? I mean, was our audience committed enough to abandon the temple? Were they committed enough to abandon rabbinic Judaism and were they committed enough to abandon the city of Jerusalem? Well history tells us that in fact they were committed enough and the question for us today is are we committed enough to leave the sacred zones of the institutionalized church? Are we committed enough to leave the sacred zones of Messianic Judaism? Are we committed enough to leave the sacred zones of the FEMA city regions? Are we? Because look at verse 12. Therefore, Yahushua also, that he might set apart the people of Israel with his own darm blood suffered outside the gate... Let us go forth, therefore, to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For we have no lasting city here, but we seek the one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of Tehillah, praise. To who Yahuwah continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving hodu, giving thanks to his name but to do tov, do good, and to share. Don't forget, for with such sacrifices, Yahuwah, he is well pleased. So there's a requirement for us. It's a requirement of service. YahuSha is the Kohen HaGadol. He is the high priest, and believers are to be fellow Kohenim. We are to be fellow priests. The job of koanim, the job of priests, is to sacrifice. In the Zedek priesthood, we don't sacrifice blood, but we do sacrifice two other things. Number one, we sacrifice in word by offering up sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. The word offer is the Greek word anaphero, anaphero, and it means to offer up in sacrifice. But let's just skim over this because it's really not important. No, it is important because we look at the language and we connect it it is written in Septuagint Greek language. And we therefore can connect it back. And we can find out where Anaphero is written in the Hebrew text. And the context of where it comes from, that way is carried forth into the book of Hebrews. I spoke of that in the introduction over 13 chapters ago. You cannot divorce it. They would like you to. But we can rely upon the word and be secure. Let's find out where this Greek word anaphero comes from because it means to offer up sacrifice and the author attributes this word to you and I in our role as priests and the context is where we're going because you can't get around this word. It clearly and definitively puts the believer, listen, it clearly and definitively puts the believer in a priestly ministry today. I know you would love to be able to rip it out of context, skim over it, but it clearly puts you in a priestly ministry today under the Kohen Haggadol, the high priest, Yehusha. The word is used throughout the Tanakh when the ordained priests offer a sacrifice. anapherō You can do your own due diligence and you'll find it throughout the Torah, throughout the Tanakh. And it is a word that comes with the context of ordained priests presently that very day offering up sacrifices. It is what it is. And that gives you the confidence to know that you are on the right path. Because you don't have to listen to me. You don't listen to men, but you listen to the word of Yahuwah, and you start connecting the language, and you start connecting the dots, and you see that red thread going throughout the scripture. And that is what you grasp, hold of for security. And that's the life. For many, many years, People try to intimidate me and many other elders within the Calvary Chapel system to go along with the doctrine and dogma. And often they would be sitting in front of bookshelves. I'm serious. I came to know Yahusha when I was 24 years old. Within two or three months, I was doing this lady's hair and she came in and she gave me a book. And it was called Torah Rediscovered by First Fruits of Zion, which I wouldn't recommend now because I think that ministry has gone sideways when it comes to the deity of Yahusha. But I read about 50 pages of that book, and it really made sense to me. It was all about the laws of Moses and the teachings and instruction of Moses and the Sabbath, and I was like, But I was a neophyte. I was a brand-new believer. And it was so not what was being taught to me from the pulpit that I was like, oh, I need to check. I don't want to be led astray. I was a brand new neophyte. So I go to the pastor and I said, look, I'm reading this book. It really resonates with me. Um, but can you tell me about it? And he looks at the book and he says, "Ah, uh, yeah, this is a bunch of Pharisaic religion and legalism. You don't want any of this. And he took the book and he went and put it on his bookshelf. In his office. He did. Yeah. Eight years later, and I've told you this story many times. I was at an elders, elders Bible study, and I started to bring up Matthew five seventeen. You know, the sheep verse. And I also started to bring up Hebrews, the, the priesthood, and the difference between context, which is um, covenant, which is in italics. And that's when the seas parted. And I was, you know, time to leave, Matthew. I walked into the pastor's office, and I took my book (laughs) off the shelf. (laughs) And I went home, and I continued, and I finished reading it. And I then began to implement many of those things that eight years previously I was not ready for because I did need that time on the milk of the word. But now it was time for the meat of the word. And then I went headlong into Messianic Judaism, and finally began to drown in the doctrines and dogmas of other people sitting in front of bookshelves. And I have now been plucked out of that by the rachamine, the mercy and grace of Yahusha. And that is why I am such a strong advocate on sola scriptura, scripture and scripture alone, because then we're not slaves to men. We are slaves to Yahuwah, and we are free. We are free indeed. Right? (laughs) It's amazing stuff. We are to sacrifice in two ways. The first was to sacrifice by offering up sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. And the second, sacrifices indeed. Don't forget to do good. Meaning, we're to perform kindly service. And verse 17, "'Listen to your spiritual leaders and obey them, for they watch for your beings.'" As those that must give account to Yahuwah, that they may do it with simcha, with joy, and not with grief, for that is unprofitable to you. Now, just because we have all of these privileges doesn't release us from spiritual oversight. If you just want to show up at a midrash free-for-all, void of spiritual leadership, and oversight, then you will experience grief and inner unexpressed groanings. That's the problem, you see, that we find today with believers that just bounce from place to place with no home. They all have this one thing in common, unexpressed inner groanings. They don't get over their hurt. They don't get over their hurt because they can't submit to any form of congregational structure. It's the residual church hurt or I'm the captain of my own shipwreck mentality that keeps on festering within their faith. Look what verse 18 says. Make tehillah, make prayers for us. For we trust that we have a tov, a good conscience. You see, when I just read the word, it truly is a balm. I just feel the balm just coming over me as I read the word, don't you? It truly is like a moisturizing balm, isn't it? Make tefillot for us, for we trust that we have a tov, a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. But I asked you exceedingly to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner In chapter 13, verse 20, it's truly, it's truly one of the most beautiful benedictions in the entire Bible. And it's directed to Yahuwah in contrite petition. Our author sums up some of the major Christological motives in this address with what I call the exemplary seven. The exemplary seven. Number one, we have an invocation. May the Eloah of Shalom. Number two, we have a descriptive clause laying the foundation for a a petition. Who brought up or led up from the dead? The Greek word there is anagegon. Anagegon, it means to lead up. In Isaiah 63 verse 11 where he, Moshe, had brought up, brought up from the earth, the shepherd of the sheep. The point driven home is this. Yehusha is greater than the three pillars of Judaism. Here, Moshe is in, in view. Yehusha was led up that he may lead Yahuwah's people. And how exactly was he led up? Zechariah 9, verse 11, in the blood of the eternal covenant, he has set the captives free. And that's my heart. To set the captives free, because Yahushua is in me, I have the responsibility, the awesome responsibility of teaching the Word, and I believe that the Word is meant to set the captives free, and I can't stand Religious nuts using the word to enslave men to their own websites, doctrines, dogmas and monthly, yearly, annual login fees that you can never get out of unless you are a web computer expert in decryptology, if there is such a word. I'm mad. I love it, though. It entertains me and keeps me awake at night. (laughs) Number three of the exemplary seven is this paramount petition that we find. He make you completely fitted to do his will. He's going to make you completely fitted like a perfectly put-together jigsaw puzzle to do his will. Taking all those broken pieces. Of my life and your life. And he's going to fit them all together. To make you completely fitted to do his will. He's going to take the broken hearted. He's going to take our broken lives. And he's going to fit us together. I'm so blessed by my wife. My marriage. How he could take two young kids. Who didn't have a blooming clue. And he fitted us together. And fit and gave us what we have. Because we give Yahushua all the glory. Because he fitted us together. And now it's going on to the next generation. And that was only possible because Yahusha took our brokenness, our broken ideas, our broken thoughts, our broken minds, and our broken bodies. And he fit it together perfectly. The world, no counseling, no webinars, no seminars, no books could ever do what Yahusha can do in marriage and in family. You just have to abide. You have to abide in him completely. And now we find the fourth exemplary is the peripheral remark working in us every good thing to do his will. And the fifth is the appeal to Moshiach's death, the merit of his death. Look at the merit of his death. And the sixth is a doxology. It's a liturgical formula of praise to Yahuwah. And the seventh, of course, is the Amen. It's truth. It's a certainty Look at that exemplary seven. Now the aloha of shalom that brought again up from the dead our master Yahusha, that great roe, shepherd of the sheep, through the dam, the blood of the everlasting Brit covenant, make you perfect in every tov mitzvot to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Yahusha. Hamashiach, to whom be tethereth glory, lay Vied, forever and ever. Oh, Amen. It's the most beautiful benediction in the whole Scriptures, I believe. It's got everything right there. Look at the exemplary seven. Follow Yahuwah and you will receive peace, resurrection, and the gentle leadership of the great shepherd, the great Roi of the sheep, gaining the everlasting truth and the everlasting return to that beautiful, everlasting covenant that has now been instituted by his blood, by his death penalty payment, making you perfectly complete and empowered to do his will. Verse 22. And I beg you. I beg you, Israelite brothers, allow this word of exhortation. For I have written a letter to you with just a few words. It really wasn't very long at all. Just 13 chapters. Of course, there were no chapters. He doesn't mean that it wasn't long in length. Because obviously, it was quite lengthy. Meaning that there is so much that this encompasses that in reality he's done a pretty good job with just 13 chapters because this is everything that our faith, our present, our past and our future consists of. And he summarised it into a letter and a group of scrolls. It really was quite short considering noodles like Darwin spend a whole lifetime filling yourself with a bunch of mumbo-jumbo that the presidential candidates then spew out through their rotting throats every single time they get on stage to try and explain why you're here, as they recommend you go to the Smithsonian and see the monkey carrying a briefcase. I mean, good grief. Sorry, but I think 13 chapters to summarise truth, truth and more truth, is quite short considering those lengthy papers they will try and make you read at college universities with their liberal agenda, where they do not give equal rate weight and measure to creation as they do the theory of evolution. I would like to see the fish which had the legs, the transition between the species. Show me that, please. It does not exist because it's a theory. There is no transitionary species. Not in the fossil record, not at all. It's easy to debunk, but they try to say that it's fact when it is, in fact, their sad and decrepit faith. But our faith has substance. It has substance, and it is amazing. Finishing up right now in verse 23. Know that our brother Timteos, he has been set free. If he comes shortly, I will see you with him. Salute all your spiritual leaders and all the Israelite Kedoshim. So we really need to start saluting one another here at the congregation. But just be very careful what kind of salute we do, especially when I start talking about the Bolsheviks and the New World Order. I will see you with him. Salute all of your spiritual leaders and all the Israelite Kedoshim. The Israelites of Italy, they salute you. And like I said in our introduction that does seem so long ago, I stated that I believe that there were Italians in the company of our author. There were Italians with him, not that he was writing from Italy. Because you could read it either way. Now, 13 chapters later, we come to the salutation. And in verse 25, Favor be to you all. Amen. Let's stand, let's stand in honour of Yahuwah, in honour of his word and what an amazing, amazing journey through Hebrews Hebraically. And next week we'll just summarise it in a short teaching to just try and encapsulate what we have journeyed through these past 13 or 14 weeks. Abhi Yahuwah, we thank you so much for your patience with us. We thank you, Abba, how you have taken us. You have molded us and you have shaped us. We thank you, Abba, for the security of your word written in the pages, but most importantly, your word that walked among us and put on flesh. We thank you for the confidence that comes with Yahushua being our high priest and us being ordained today. As priests after the order of Zedek. Amen. 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 Amen.